people say you give it to the RIT, they're on fire all the time. They'll just run with it. They're ready. I, I equate ourselves to being running a relay race where we are the last leg of the race. And I always tell my teams, you have to be ready to run your hardest when you get the baton. Welcome to MedTech Stories. I'm your host, Vishali. Our guest today is Nita Sharma. She is the VP of Global Regulatory Affairs at Dexcom. She's had a wide range of experiences from being an engineer to working on some incredibly challenging regulatory submissions on both hardware and software devices. Tune in to hear Nita's story and how she always embraces a growth mindset in all facets of life and deliberately takes on new challenges such as running multiple marathons. Thank you so much, Nita, for coming on the show. I'm super, super excited to have you. And I know we'll have a really great conversation. Perfect. Thank you for having me, Rishali. It's great to to be on this show with you. Awesome. So I've given our audience a little bit of background about you and your career, but can you just start by telling us um, in your own words about how you got started in medtech and where everything came about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up going back a few years, I grew up in New Delhi and I um, studied in Mumbai and I did biomedical engineering, but the engineering in India was very um, capital equipment, hardware, very rigid engineering. And then I came to USC and I started to see all of the cool things that were happening at USC in terms of research. We were doing implantable hearing aids. We were putting vision back in people's eyes. We were uh, fixing people who had tremors and, and all sorts of conditions. We are working on CGM, continuous glucose monitoring at USC. So I think I really saw a whole different side of biomedical engineering. And I'm so thankful that I came to USC because it just made um, so much more sense to be in the field that I had chosen to be. Um, I did some research in glucose sensing and I did research in uh, TENS devices, um, neuromodulation. And and through that experience, and then obviously I graduated with my master's in engineering and I did a lot of work in cochlear implants and hearing aids. And that really um, capstone my uh, my schoolwork. And then I transitioned into industry and I started with St. Jude Medical. So sorry, really quick. I was curious, how did you choose biomedical engineering to start in, in India and everything like that? That's a great question. And I honestly have to give a lot of credit to my dad who had a lot of foresight into where this intersection would be in 10, 20 years. Because when he did his engineering in in the early 60s, he did electrical engineering when um, he obviously grew up in India, but there was not as many um, provinces or states that had electricity. So he really saw that electrical engineering more than infrastructure, than civil engineering would be a lot more impactful. And he saw how the convergence of um, miniaturization of electronics had started to happen in the 90s and, and what was happening in the West. And he really pushed me into that. And he Obviously, I had aspirations to be a physician, um, and and I think this is a great intersection. So I have to give my dad a lot of credit for pushing me in this field. That's awesome. I, I think similar to you, I had aspirations to be a physician, um, but found biomedical engineering is the perfect like intersection between that. So then you started at St. Jude. Um, what were you doing at St. Jude? I was doing quality engineering, so I was literally hired to look through mount, mountains of scrap ICDs and look through them and identify what was broken and how our engineers could design it better. So essentially designed for better manufacturing, or it's called BFM now. 
So just sit with the production engineers and the production staff and just observe how they made the products and just try to make it better in terms of how we source components, how we do certain um, operations, measure tech time. And I think I, I really learned how to operate in a factory and that really translated very well overall in my, my career. Because even now, when I obviously am doing RA, I do submissions or any projects, I just imagine it's a factory. So that experience really shaped me very well at St. Jude. And I did continuous improvement projects, Six Sigma projects. So I think early on, having that exposure really put me on the mindset of growth mindset of always improving our processes. And that has served me really well in my career. That definitely sticks out from whenever I've worked with you, that there's always, you know, here's one way of doing it, but how do we make it better and how do we continue to move the needle forward? So after being quality engineering at St. Jude, what what happened next and how did you transition into regulatory too? Yeah, so I was looking out to um, move into a little bit more traditional field in terms of like, how do I apply all of this knowledge um, into, into, you know, um, just getting products approved because I was seeing through my, my quality experience that that was a really big struggle. Even at St. Jude, just the tack time and the speed of how approvals happened with the FDA. I was generally fascinated and had also finished my second master's at USC in, in by then, which was in, in regulatory science. So I transitioned into RA. I could have stayed at St. Jude, but I, I received a really wonderful call from you know Medtronic and I couldn't say no. And they were really looking for people with engineering backgrounds because they're building a pretty brand new team, RA team at Medtronic in their cardiovascular division. So I was pretty much gravitated towards that uh, role. I had a fascination for Medtronic anyways, being one of the best in in its league. So I ended up at Medtronic and I spent about seven years just doing submissions for thoracic stents. And that experience I would, um, is is second to none. I think it's one experience that I cherish mostly in my career because I really got uh, honed by some really strong RA leaders around me and the culture as a management team and, and how well we work with the FD. I think I have to give a lot of credit to my peers and colleagues at Medtronic for really shaping who I became, you know, as, as I grew in my RA career. Actually, I'm curious. So what was the most challenging submission you had to do and like what made it challenging? So um, I did several submissions, but I would um, say there was a major design change that we had to introduce during a clinical study. We had um, higher than expected adverse event and for a stent or a thoracic procedure, an adverse event can be as bad as death. So we, we had, had to make a tough call to the FDA that we have to pass the study and make a design change. And that obviously threw the whole program off by a few months. But I think um, I, again, have to credit my, my mentors and my bosses. Instead of them calling the FDA, they worked with me. They prepared me how to make that call and, and were in the room, but did not say anything, but really put me forward and, and said, you be the call. This is probably one of the few opportunities you'll get with the FDA to break up bad news. Usually you're working on mundane submission thing, uh, which is easy. So I would say that was the most challenging. But the preparation helped telling them exactly what happened, how we were fixing the problem, how we were um, making sure the patients who had the product already were being taken care of, how their follow-ups would increase, and how we would um, come back to the FDA at the right time with a change in the study design, change in the product um, feature set was really good. So I spent quite a bit of time preparing for that call. Um, and then obviously the product got approved um, eventually, and that's again, uh, was a really great experience to just be in that um, on, on the project, just take it from 
start to finish with a couple of bumps along the way. Yeah, for sure. It's it's always difficult breaking bad news and I'm sure it's even more difficult breaking bad news to our regulatory bodies. Okay, so after Medtronic, what happened? Where did you go and how did you think about your career? Yeah, so when I was at Medtronic, I think um uh, I had started to um just being having a growth mindset, I started to realize that I needed to have some more uh software exposure. Uh, a lot of the products that I was working on were like mechanical stem stem graphs and they have like zero software, you know, in, in it. And I realized that if I have to um, work on different products, then software would be one because software as a medical device was pretty unique in late 2000s and it was something that was emerging. So I, again, through Medtronic, I found a really neat development opportunity with our diabetes division in Northridge uh, in, in LA. Um, and I started doing a program with them, which was on the hospital CGM site. Um, and I was able to leverage some CGM exposure I had at USC when I had actually developed a glucose sensors. I was working on some. So that exposure really helped me connect and get back into more on the software side of things. Um, I was working on that program and then um, due to personal reasons, we, we decided to move out of the Bay Area and move closer to, to be with the family. I had two kids by then and my kids wanted to be closer to their cousins. So we ended up in Irvine in Southern California and I ended up joining Edwards Life Sciences. And their glucose program, which is their critical care business, I was another critical care business here. So I spent some time at Edwards working on their hospital CGM system. And um, their sensor partner was actually Dexcom, which is where I am currently. So that ex- I was able to just see that through the other side of, like, from R&D point of view, from the other side. Um, obviously, I'm at Dexcom now, so I can see the partner side. So I've been through the three journeys of CGM, I think. So that's where I was at Edwards. Um, and then we worked at Volcano after that. Once I left Edwards, I was at Volcano. And again, what it, it, uh, attracted me to Volcano was the software, the IFR technology, and just knowing that how software can be used even in cardiovascular procedures and in detection of stenosis. I think that was just furthering my interest in, in software side. Yeah. And, and thinking a little bit more and diving into the technical side of things, you know, IFR was a completely new algorithm. Um, how did you think about that submission? That was, a, again, a really good exposure for like knowing that software can be used to really lower the burden of, on, on the patient's decisions and on the, on the healthcare system. But I think the challenge was just having the right accuracy of that, that algorithm, the diagnosis. So I think just working through the data, I know we had lots of data collected from the FFR technology and then we mapped that all to IFR and we were able to identify that yes, the technology works for the most part, but here's where there could be mismatches and just being transparent to the physicians and the FDA made sense. And I think we were able to establish a really good accuracy parameters. And then obviously there's a lot of um, publications and clinical evidence that was generated post-approval and I think that continued to fuel all of the growth and advancement in IFR. Absolutely. It was my first project coming out of college and it was super exciting to work on it. So it's it's great to see how far it's even come now with the with the bulk of clinical evidence that they have now to to really show that it's a great technology for physicians to use. I think um what what sold me on IFR was when I mapped the procedure with, with our clinical and our marketing team. For FFR and then how they have to really stress the patient, give them unnecessarily adenosine to like, you know, just slow their heart rate and whatnot. 
And then here you have IFR technology that literally goes in and minutes can tell you where you need to stand. I think that really put the whole perspective, literally minutes for me, like this is what we have to really move towards. Anything we can do to make our patients and physicians life easy, we have to start um, moving technology towards that spectrum of the product line. Yeah, you're you're totally right. It's the adenosine too that sold me <laughs> in that, you know, it, I didn't realize how painful sometimes uh, getting adenosine is and that it literally induces your your blood vessels to expand and like act as if you're in a hyperemic state. If you don't have to do that and you can do it just through software, it's it's amazing. So I know I really enjoyed working on strategizing submissions with you um, at Volcano and really figuring out, you know, what are unique ways to leverage um, existing technologies and have that as supporting evidence. So after Volcano, you kind of came full circle at uh, Dexcom with CGM. How's Dexcom going and how are you thinking about um, things there? Yeah, um, th there was a little bit of a detour. I went, I just want to acknowledge my one of my previous employers before Dexcom, uh, that's DJO, and I have to credit them for giving me a really good platform. Again, I after our acquisition by Philips, I, I stayed for a bit, and then I realized I needed a little bit more um, different different types of experiences that Philips would, would offer at the moment. Some of my career um, uh, aspirations were slightly different, that so I felt DJO would, was the right place. And DJ was very unique in the sense it was taking me back a couple of couple of years into again orthopedic implantables, what I had already done in, in the stent world. But at, by then I had really established a very good understanding of software as a medical device. So that no longer was my career um, goal. My career goal was really um, overseeing a very large team, really building my leadership experience, really dealing with some compliance issues that, that were going on at DJO. Uh, in, actually, not just a DJ, it was very prevalent in all of the orthopedic industry with hip-on-hip implants failing and our FDA oversight. So I just figured that was the experience I needed, which is a lot more harder and challenging. It would have been really comfortable to stay in the role at Philips versus to step into like a landmine of compliance and landmine of a much bigger team uh, and, and a team that was not performing at the time when I took it on. So I think that experience was really good and it prepared me extremely well. Um, to my current role, which is at Dexcom, where again, I, I came and I had to turn around the team to an extent. There were some um, gaps in the team we filled. And then we had really this aspiration of making lives of people with diabetes simpler by bringing our um, next-gen CGM out. And again, we, we worked very hard. And again, we, we established a category with the FD. It's called integrated CGM. Also, um, sometimes called as interoperable CGM, where you can connect with the insulin delivery device and really make the life of patients a lot easier. So again, um, these diseases um, can happen as early as, you know, at by birth. So just knowing the impact it can have on pediatrics all the way to a much older population, uh, I think that just sold me on Dexcom technology, like how well, um, what a wonderful opportunity to serve like pediatric population. Um, so I think uh, that this experience is going really well and continue, I continue to be more um, honored and humbled to be at Dexcom because the more people and patients have impacted and the stronger our team has become, it just makes you more prouder to be at Dexcom. And it, I just keep reminding myself, it's just a really great place to be at. It seems like you've had a very, very strategic way you've thought about your career in that First, it's diving in deep and understanding how products are made and kind of how do we make products better from an engineering perspective. And then 
ensuring that you have a breadth of experience as well as depth of experience in the regulatory filing process, right? In terms of the the stent graphs to uh, software to also then expanding your leadership and building teams and not just taking the easiest tasks of, okay, I'm just going to build a team and it's everything's going well. It's also going into those landmines of how do we, how do we fix um, something that is maybe not excelling as, as much as it could be and really bringing your spirit to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to um, always remind myself, it was, it's very easy to stay complacent, get complacent and, and be where you are. And I have to credit my husband for pushing me always because it's very easy to say life's good. Let's just stay put. No need to move anywhere. Let's just, these jobs are working well. But then I think if if I have to remind myself, um, if good is here, great is somewhere else. So do we want to stay in good or do we want to go find that great greatness in our careers, in our lives, professionally, personally, um, you know, spiritually, however it is that, that fulfill us. So I think it's always looking for that next um, opportunity. Again, not just the career opportunity, it has to be the right opportunity because you're doing this for the long haul, not just looking for the next shiny object, but it has to align strategically. And it also has to fulfill you personally. It can't just be any job. The job needs to mean a lot to you more than just a job, which I think I've always taken each of my jobs as like a really important milestone in my career. And I think I give my 150% to it, then I feel I get the 200% back in return just in terms of satisfaction and just building a stronger, um, you know, tribe of, you know, like products and, and teams and whatnot. So actually diving in deeper to that, how do you think about when you're ready to move on to the next opportunity? And how do you figure out your, you've checked the box or you've crossed off what you're trying to achieve in each um, scenario? That's a hard question because I don't think we ever get bored in a job or be we feel we've done everything. It's usually your next calling comes when if the opportunity just knocks at the right time. So you might not feel at all times you're ready for the next level. You still feel I have a lot more to do here. But I think there's somebody who's looking at your potential and saying, I think it usually comes from both sides, like you feeling ready for that next role, even though you may not have checked all the boxes in your current role, and someone else ready to take a chance on you and say, no, I think you have a lot more potential. So when someone gives you that confidence, you feel like, yes, I think I'm ready for that next leap. Um, and I have to credit all the people who have hired me along the way that they've always taken a chance on me and have always made me realize that I'm more than what I think I am. And that really helps me take the leap of faith. And yes, I think I can do that next job. Yeah, for sure. I never feel like I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, but there's always, um, I don't know about you, but I sometimes have that itch in different roles of like, okay, well, what else could I be doing? Um, how do you balance that? I think I, I remind myself that I have to obviously do really, really well in the role I've been hired to do that obviously cannot get compromised or changed. And then I look for, um, try to, as they say, try to water where you are standing you know, make the grass greener where you are at. So I look for opportunities to do things that are not traditional RA things, but if I, I don't hold myself into a traditional head of RA role, I think I'm a leader in a publicly traded company and my responsibility is to contribute in multifaceted ways. So if I have a project that's kind of an intersection of marketing and RA, I would just go to the marketing head and say, let's do this. And I don't hold back. And I would take an active role in leading it, championing it, whatever I need. 
Um, so I just don't follow the traditional norms. Obviously, um, you have to do what you're hired to do on paper, but then the role is a lot more than just what's on paper. You know, your job duties are what the company wants you to do, but no one's going to stop you if you want to span your wings along the way to other functions. Obviously, in a mindful manner, we don't want to end up doing marketing job or sales job, but we could find opportunities to work with, with teams, a little bit more being one team instead of marketing team and R. So I feel um, that's a good way. And then always be ready to raise your hand if there are projects that you think or opportunities that will benefit the company, then just find a champion who would support you. And then just say, no one's doing it. I'm going to do it. it. It's okay if it should be traditionally done by different function as long as you're willing to put the time and effort. I think that's reasonable to go for it. Can you think of an example where you've stepped into a different type of functional role that isn't specifically in RA, like you just said? Yeah, I think one of my uh, previous roles at, I won't disclose the company just for confidentiality reasons, and I don't want if someone listens from that group to be sensitive about it, but there were opportunities in one of the companies where a, a different function was, there was clinical function, you know, I'll just be honest, you know, uh, but not a tech star at a different company where the, the leader just wasn't uh, able to um, contribute at an effect. In, in a manner that we needed. So I ended up taking a lot of the work under our team. And he said, it's, it's totally fine. I think I have this experience. I can do it. Again, not trying to make them feel bad for not performing, just telling them, I acknowledge this is uh, an area that you have not worked on before. I have. It's a post-approval study type of set, setting that I'm very familiar with. We are not taking clinicals function for running pre-market studies, but I think I have experience on how to do set up real-world evidence, registry, post-market, so it was just something that I was offering my support and the leader took it. She did not feel um, offended or anything. She, if anything, she was happy with the support. So I think wherever you see a leader or a colleague needing support, just lend a hand and do it in a respectful manner and they would gladly accept you know, their, their support. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's also advice that I've taken and definitely expanded my roles as um, as I've seen company opportunities. Like, for example, when I was a systems engineer, you know, freshly hired, I started doing a lot of validation work um, and I became the validation expert at the company because it was just an area of need um, and we needed the work to be done and it was required. And it was a really great way for me to learn how to do validation. How do you write the questions and how do you think about human factors engineering too? Exactly. I think that's the way to do it because that way I think your impact is a lot, felt a lot more um, on a wider scale rather than changing departments because then you're losing what you are really good at and then you're jumping onto something else. Rather, why not just keep building on that and then keep doing what you're doing that you're really good at and then keep adding to your uh, portfolio. Diving a little bit deeper into, you know, your accomplishments, you're very, very highly accomplished. But if I had to ask you to pick one, uh, both personal and professional accomplishment that you're proud of, can you tell me a little bit more about it and why? Yeah, so professional accomplishments are many. Uh, I think if I could um, pick one, it would have to be just creating this whole category of CGM at Dexcom that we created. We created this new era of CGM, which is integrated CGMs. And I think traditionally folks review RA function as um, just put the submissions in, do a PMA, do a 510K. But I think we at Dexcom played a very strategic role. We work very closely with the FDA to down classify CGMs and we made, go, made it go from class two to class two. So 
lower the burden quite a bit for Dexcom in terms of efficiencies. We added a lot of efficiencies in our manufacturing and R&D processes. And we also work closely with the FDA to establish a very strict um, clinical performance requirement that acted as a competitive advantage for the most part for Dexcom. Uh, and then also made sure that CGMs coming into the market were actually of high accuracy that the patients deserve. Uh, we don't mind having more competition around us. That, that was not the intent. The intent was to set the bar so high that the users never feel uh, that they don't have, that they have to compromise accuracy for cost or anything. If you want to be an ICGM, this is a minimum performance bar you have to meet. And I think that served the company really well. We were able to bring our next-gen product almost 18 months ahead of schedule. This was in Did 20- you say 18 months? 18 months, yes. Yeah. So our factory CGM came almost 18 months ahead of time. And that was, um, again, just a wow factor with the product. And we work strategically. So I feel pretty proud of that accomplishment and, and just the way the company was able to, to um, take that opportunity and run with it. Obviously, we got the product here, but we have to credit all the engineers who worked on the product. Um, then the RA team that took the burden of making, you know, from class three to class two, that's a whole new and I had never done that. We had never petitioned for a class two product to be class two. So it was the first time I was doing it. I was leading that effort. Uh, but again, you have to keep doing new things to keep pushing. And there was, um, you know, sky's the limit if you know uh, that we have to do this for our patients. And then obviously a production and, and ops and other teams that took the opportunity and really supported. And I think now Dexcom has, you know, not three years since we, we did that process and we have several thousand patients have benefited from that and we've saved um, a lot of time and efficient and added a lot more efficiencies in our systems. So that would be my most proud professional accomplishment, I would say, amongst many others. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. I know people usually think of, no offense, regulatory is the long haul, um, but you totally turned that around. Yep. Yeah. We are not concerned the long hauls at all. In fact, People say you give it to the auditing, they're on fire all the time. They'll just run with it. They're ready. I, I equate ourselves to being running a relay race where we are the last leg of the race. And I always tell my teams, you have to be ready to run your hardest when you get the baton. And we we do that practice and rigor. It's it's like I'm the coach of the team and I'm making my team do that practice, that the last leg, the fastest. So we do mock submissions, I send people to training, we, we do everything we can to make sure that the last leg that we get to run it is our fastest and the best. And I think that's how we keep improving ourselves. We cannot drop the baton when we get it. It means our practices and policies and procedures and our training and our staff has to be top notch, ready to run it at high efficiency that's required. There is no room for error after that. So that, that's the mindset that I have always used even whenever I've left teams or whenever I'm writing submissions myself. I know we saw that with uh, our IFR submission. <laughs> I actually remember that back in the day. So for sure. Um, okay. What about your personal accomplishment? So personal accomplishments, um, uh, I think I would say um, it'll sound cliche, but obviously kids and family, it's all there, you know, just out of my kids and everything. But I would say it's something that I did on my own was just I, I trained for a marathon and I completed several and I I don't say to brag that I ran a marathon I say to just to inspire people that when people say that work-life balance is hard for working women or you know you can't have it all you never have it all but at different times of your life you have to put yourself um, as a priority and if it's a personal goal of yours to run a marathon before party or before whatever 
then only you are the roadblock in your own way. There's no one else. So I just use it to inspire people who say they don't have time for exercise or time for their personal goals because they're busy with kids. I trained for a marathon when I was um, commuting several hours a week and my kids were much younger when I was um, leaving stressful projects and, and everything. But if it's a priority, you'll make it happen because we all have the same 24 hours. So I, I just um, feel proud of that. I signed up for a goal and I finished it, you know, and obviously along the way, I made some um, friends that are friends for life. And I made, I learned some really good habits and I was able to bring some back into my own parenting style or management style, just to how to train in a group, how to wait and support everyone that signed up to a marathon with you. Don't leave your friends behind. Justin. You know, I just learned some really good life lessons along the way. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Ferg actually, (laughs) Um, because when I started at Volcano, he was my first boss and he had a Strandura running group. Um, And I think you were part of Strandura too. Um, And Strandura was crazy, but awesome because it was strength endurance training and you would do different things, but it was definitely that same mentality of like no person left behind. You do as much as you can, um, but you show up every day um, whenever it's happening. And um, I know that, you know, Ferg (laughs) had a great impact on you too, in terms of bringing Sundura into the team. And um, I, I can definitely echo all of what you said in terms of your commuting, you had a lot of work to do, but at lunch, you would still go and do Strandura and you fit it into your schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I have to credit for for a lot of things. And the first and foremost is just introducing me to Strandura and running, not running ad hoc. Like when I feel like I'm I've gained a little bit of weight, like making running like a, a part of your life. And I, it's been several years, but I feel incomplete if I don't get three or four miles in almost every day. And it's just has become now uh, more of a personal cleansing exercise. I feel like all the stress of my day, all the worries and all the anxiety that I have for different various things, it just, that 30, 40 minutes, is, it just disappears. And I come back a lot more productive, a lot more happier person, fulfilled person, you know, ready for the next part of the day. So on the flip side, what would you say is the most significant risk that you've taken in your career um, or with a company and, and kind of looking back, what made it challenging and then what would you have done differently? I'll have to credit again, going back to my experience at DJO and that's why it's such an important milestone in my career because going from working on um, hospital CGM at Metrani, then going to Edwards working on again software, then going to Volcano working on software. So almost like seven to eight years of working in software. And here I am ready to turn it all back into like a hard, like implantable type device, which is like um, a, a, you know, product that used for older people or people with like, you know, trauma, stress and, and all sorts of like accidents and whatnot. The product that has very limited, like you don't really know who, what kind of hip somebody has. It's basically when a person shows up, they get a hip replacement, they move on. So the company is usually behind the scenes. It's not like a Dexcom or Edwards or a brand that was well known at the time. It wasn't a company that I had even heard of. I just knew it was like an orthopedic company that needed like a right skill set. Um, and then also I was um, walking into like a team that I already said was not performing. And I had was, I was signing up in, in all transparency that the boss had told me that there'll be teams remote in Texas, in China. There'll be a team in France that's not performing. The team in, in San Diego is not performing. 
So you have to figure out. And by the way, we don't have budget to hire new people. And by the way, the company has our compliance issues. And, and by the way, um, you'll have to be on the job five days a week. So figure it all out, right? So I think just signing up for that versus leaving a very cushiony job at Philips where I could, Philips was, um, you know, was giving me a really good role when, when I decided to leave. They said I could work from home. I didn't have to come into the office and knowing all the comfort and just taking that big leap of faith that DJ is the right role because it will build character in me as a leader. It'll expose me to things I've never done, like um, managing remote teams, managing teams that are remote and not performing. And it required me to travel frequently to Texas. Once a month, I had to spend a week in Austin. And just building all of that um, experience to me at that time in my career seemed a lot more valuable. It turned out to be great because I was able to get a really good role at Dexcom because the size of the team was similar. And the issues are not as same. The team was performing way better here uh, and everything was good. But I think that would have been a risk if, you know, I, if I failed, I would be, you know, at, at a risk of being considered a performing leader. People would hate me because I came in and I changed everything, but it turned out great. I left it at a good place and I left it um, and I left the company much richer in my own confidence and capabilities as a leader. After that experience, no management position scares me because I feel like I've seen it all, I've done it all. Um, imagine telling people there's no bonus checks coming, right? At the end of the performance reviews, imagining, imagine telling people, oh, by the way, we're going to lay off a couple of people, right? And once you've done all of that, then I feel you're better prepared because you learn empathy, you learn many other things, you learn just how to treat people with better care, you try to work with them, but in the end, you're also keeping in mind the business that the business wants you to do. So I think that experience was really good, but it's also high risk for me at the time. Yeah, that's that's really, really hard. And and really, really glad that you did it too, because it sounds like it was challenging, but very, very enriching um, in the long term. And I've heard from you and many other mentors that, you know, some of the best things that you'll do in your career are some of the hardest, um, where you have days where you just don't want to do it anymore um, and you want to move on to the next thing. So was there anything in that experience or any other experience that you did differently from your peers, you think? I would say, um, yes, like there, there were roles that I signed up for that were, as I said, just like DGO that were harder that most people wouldn't or people wouldn't take jobs that are like 60 miles away from their home and commit to it, right? So, but again, it's the right role that attracted me, the leadership, the management, the team structure, the products, you know? So they, I think those are things that I did differently that have really set me apart in the sense I don't hesitate anymore to take risks. If it's the right role, I would go for it. Everything else gets figured out, you know? But obviously I don't want everyone to like start plunging into it because you need to have the right infrastructure at home and the right support from your family without that you obviously family first so if you don't have the right structure then don't go for it because you'd end up making your personal life a lot harder um i had support from my husband i had support from you know i had uh, two really um good nannies that were working with me and were willing to support and my kids obviously you know were very supportive of it too so i think just having the right balance and infrastructure is first and foremost but if that's in place then I think you, you can go for bigger roles. But again, um, sometimes it has to happen in reverse. Like you take the role and then you work your way around the infrastructure. Um, you won't have it all figured out on day one when you start a new job. 
it kind of is organic and it kind of grows with itself. Always a work in progress, but as long as you have the right infrastructure, I think you're able to make more risky moves um, and and feel supported and feel like you can still be successful or you have a safe um, landing pad if something doesn't work out too. So shifting gears a little bit into mentorship and leadership, who do you turn to for inspiration and uh, for mentorship? I look across the, you know, my, my 360 sphere. So I have a lot of colleagues that have along the way have intersected my path, career path, previous bosses. So I don't have like one person I call, but I'm always looking for support from my colleagues, peers, uh, my family members. Um, and then just being exposed to a lot of the, a lot of the podcasts, like how you're recording, just even though I may not know the people, but I do try to listen to a lot of TED Talks, podcasts, read a lot of autobiographies and look for people who've built careers or have built businesses from grounds up. Um, I think there's inspiration anywhere you look. So I, I just try to find that and just, um, and obviously I reflect on the work ethic my dad had. He had a very strong work ethic. So I try to sometimes remind myself if my dad was in this shoe, what would he do, right? Would he take this job or not? Would he go for this role or not? So I think that that shapes a lot of my just just surrounding myself with the right people at all times. I think in a previous uh, conversation, you and I were talking about how you've brought mentorship into Dexcom. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, at Dexcom, we have a really strong philosophy of talent management, especially in in our organization that that spans QA, RA, IT, tech support. It's led by one of our EVPs, Don Abbey, who's again, one of my favorite bosses I've had the pleasure to work with. Um, and he's an excellent coach for me. And I think he brought in a lot of similar mindsets. So that's why we, we have a really good chemistry of doing talent management. So I think through his um, uh, support and, and experience, we built a really strong mentoring program at Dexcom where we do uh, do a session, a facilitated session, uh, where we bring in high potentials into like a leadership circle kind of a forum where there's about 20 to 25 people that are selected based on their, their potential, their performance, and their engagement with us. And we do like a quarterly leadership circle with them. And if needed, we would pair them with other mentors across the company. But I feel in this mentoring circle, Don and all of his staff are present. Sometimes we bring other ERT members into the mix and we allow these use uh, the, the population to actually ask questions in a pre-prepared format. We would ask for questions, solicit up front, and then one of us would usually facilitate the session. And we've been doing it for almost three years now. We rotate the participants. So every year this program runs for a year. And then we, we subset it and we bring a new cohort along with us. Um, beginning of April, we just started our next cohort. Um, and people have benefited immensely from that the exposure, the breadth of uh, knowledge that they, they uh, obtain, and then the uh, peer group that they are with. I think that really helps as well. For sure. And, and what compelled you to bring that to Dexcom like what was there what was the the premise behind it I think there were two folds one a lot of the people they just didn't have exposure to the leadership so they were just uh doing their day jobs and would only receive emails from these people who they knew were at a higher position and and these people at the higher position are usually hungry to give give back to the community give back to their employees so I think we just saw this gap where people are saying how can I come and talk to your staff I just want to help them know what I do, any questions they may have, how can I explain, how can I in- inspire more people to take on more challenging roles. And I think you're trying to build that mindset, growth mindset within the company. 
And then too, a lot of the people are just don't have the exposure that, you know, we have. So by in these forums, you get exposed to like, I would bring in sometimes list of podcasts that I've listened to or list of best HBR articles of the last quarter, right? So just giving them that, um, those tools really help them. You kind of like are empowering them and telling them there's all this information out there that you can get exposed to. You don't always have to go to an MBA school to get that exposure. So I think people benefit that. How can they integrate development in their day-to-day lives without having to know, feel that they have to stop work, go to a school or go change a job? So I think that's what you're trying to do, like inspire them again, as I said, water where your grass is growing. So you want to stay in that place. You want people to want to stay in our groups. You don't want them to feel like they're not growing. And our turnover, thankfully, is really, really low. We have the best um, attrition, uh, lowest attrition in the company and the best employee satisfaction in the entire company for our group, which is, again, speaks to how we manage our talent and we treat them like a very valuable asset to us. That's amazing. I would totally work for you if I was in an RA expert. <laughs> I'll tell you that. That's really good to hear. And I think that's also what I was able to benefit from, from a lot of my mentors and that they would send me random HBR articles about job to be done, or they would send me the um, the day one letter that Jeff Bezos writes. And those were like small little opportunities for me to just learn and, and grasp on what else is out there. But sometimes if you're just working, you don't really know what's out there and you don't know what you don't know. And so having leadership, having men- mentors and managers share that is is super helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like we've seen a great um, uh, turnaround in a lot of the employees who are more in a in a job that was again getting complacent and we've seen like a lot of the employees are starting to engage or they are sending information back to us. I think we are learning with them as well. And we've just been happy to see how productive that whole atmosphere has been for them. I want to dive a little bit deeper into your leadership um, framework. So I know a lot of leaders have the innate ability to make important decisions without having, say, 100% of the information. And I'm sure in a regulatory function, you you never really know what the FDA is going to say. Um, so how do you make decisions and what's your framework for that? So um, in my day-to-day, yeah, there's a lot of this decision-making that crosses my day-to-day work line for my desk that will say, we don't know you make the final call because we only have 60% of the information. So I usually keep three things in front of me, obviously patient safety, like if this were to be implanted in my family member or used such a product, would I be okay with it? And if usually the answer is yes, then I feel like, okay, so that's all that's basic that I think most people in, in healthcare and medical device do, like would I do it to my mom or my or my kids, you know, so and yeah. The second is, um, do if I were to sign off on this and things go south, would it get published on New York Times tomorrow? Like, will that that's like my smell test. Would I be proud of it? You know, if it showed up on New York Times or will it? Will my kids be proud of it if they saw this? You know, so that's my second smell test, right? And then the third is um, eighty twenty rule, which means I would basically rely on eighty percent of the information and my experience and my gut to make that call. I would never expect. R&D or clinical or any function, they have 100% of the information. Nobody has that. They cannot tell you for certainty. I cannot tell you for certainty if FDA would, would create, um, would consider this to be a major change or would create an issue with it. So again, I rely on the 80-20 rule, which is like, okay, as long as I feel like I have 80% of the information, I'm ready to take 20% of the risk in some of my decision-making. And that confidence, again, comes from trial and error, from being in different situations, getting exposed to um 
tougher problems in the past on similar issues. And I feel I, I have a pretty good gauge now that I feel like 80-20 rules is a good um, metric for me to follow. That's a really good framework, actually. And I can echo the, would I implant this in my grandmother or my mom uh, sentiment for sure. Do you have an example of kind of how recently uh, you had to implement your decision-making framework? You can think of either like a work-related one or even like a personal-related one. Actually, maybe a personal-related one. Anything fun like with your kids where you had to make make a key decision? I think as we started before, like you're going for this trip, right? And you're planning a trip to Hawaii in a pandemic and you've been very patient at home. So again, I think it's the 80-20 rule, like you're vaccinated, kids are not, but to get into Hawaii, you need a COVID test. You get a COVID test when you arrive. So I think those are scientific checkpoints. I feel like that's a safe. It's not like being, we're being reckless. You're just checking what's the likelihood of a risk occurring and the risk goes significantly down when everybody's masked in the plane. You picking you pick the airline that requires everyone to be masked. You require everyone to be tested. Pick a destination that's a little bit more stricter. It's not like going to another country when are going too far. So I think those were some of the things that made us okay. Obviously you had to think hard, but again, my husband and I both we look at data all the time. We make decisions at work all the time. So this was a relatively we felt would be safer decision to make and obviously you're carrying a little bit of risk as always anywhere you go even if you go to grocery store you're carrying that much risk always even if you want to stay home and and again we don't want to be holed up in the house forever we, if you're vaccinated we need to start moving on with our lives to some extent and then um, on similar ranges starting to put my kids back in like swimming and, and activities that are a little bit more healthier rather than them staying at home and not doing any exercise that I think is a lot worse for them, but I think going into swim where they do temperature checks and the kids are actually thriving going back in, in the water because that's where they that's how the kids are. They just want to be outdoors with their friends and they're swimming. So I think those are decisions we make on a day-to-day basis with like, you know, keeping a good 80-20 rule. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, travel will definitely pick up, but it'll still be similar to what you said, the 80-20 rule of you never know. And so you just be careful, you make the the best decision with the information you have. Um, and that goes for personal and professional decisions. Awesome. Um, this is an open question. So let me know if you don't have anything on your mind, but what else is on your mind lately? Is there anything like interesting that you want to discuss or share with the, our listeners? I, I know everybody's starting to get vaccinated just on the same, starting to get back to work. So I'm, I'm, bittersweet about it in the sense like I've enjoyed my time being at home and not having to travel but I'm also looking forward to just going back into the office at Dexcom we have started to actually have concrete plans when people will start to come in how the uh, infrastructure would look like we are changing building locations because it's facing everybody out so uh, smaller groups like mine are moving to a different location which is great you're starting to put schedules in place there'll be software deployed at the company that will allow you to book cubicles if going to an open office setting so i'm just excited but in the back of my mind i'm also thinking oh the time is coming where we we may actually have to start to actually wear formal clothes and start going to work putting makeup on and and all of that stuff that i've appreciated not having to do all of that right so i think just that's on my mind but i i am ready for that because i feel for our own mental well-being we need to be around with with other adults or other individuals who push us and who 
um, mentally uh, stimulate us. So I think I'm just looking forward to being back in the office soon. So as a, as a wrap up, there are three questions that I like to ask every uh, guest that we have on the show. So the first question is, what's your greatest leadership superpower and how have you honed it? Um, I think it's my risk-taking ability, which was, I have to admit, which was literally zero when I was much younger in my life. And I had a lot um, required me to just mentally be, you know, stronger and just take risks. And again, I think that really helped me to like say yes for challenging roles, say yes to roles that required me to travel more, even when I had younger kids. And I think slowly over the years, I have built that still harder in the sense like it's a lot more natural to me to say yes to things. I don't hesitate if I have to travel right away for work or if I have to go into a stressful meeting with, with our CEO or with an executive or with FDA. I think things are a lot. I just feel my preparation is so much more now that I'm not um shy of taking risks. So I think those that would be my ones. It's not a superpower, but again, it used to be not a skill, but I'm glad that I was able to turn that around. It was a weakness in me, but now it has actually become my skill over the years or my strength. That's awesome. I know it's it's risky coming from India and, and going to college here and then even just figuring out um, which company to go to, what type of role to do, and even your transition from, I think, quality engineering to um, regulatory. I'm sure that was a, a challenging risk too. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And then just uh, be ready. Like I feel like we, a lot of people ask me, do you think you'll go back to India? Do you think you miss home? And I'm like, the world is our home. We are global citizens now. We just are, we should be, the home is where my family is. I don't think just by we draw boundaries and we become different countries. Yes, you have a passport that's different, you know. Um, but again, the world is, it's a, we are a global citizen and we can be anywhere. So never say no to a challenge just because it's in Europe or it's in a different country because you can make home wherever you go. If you're with your family and your loved ones, you'll, Again, you'll, you'll flower wherever you're planted if you have the right environment. It doesn't have to be a certain country or a certain zip code. Yeah, I, I can definitely echo that. I know we moved um, when I was younger and we just figured out where home was. And um, when I moved from Northern California to San Diego too, I packed all my stuff into my little Honda CRV, And uh, pretty much all the time I kept thinking, Okay, if I get a call to go to New York, Boston, Europe, we'll go. It's it's one car full of stuff and it'll be fine. I have a little bit more stuff now, but um, I think it, the same sentiment is there. Okay, so second question. What advice would you have for other people that aspire to be in leadership positions similar to you? Take the role if you want it. Don't let um, your doubts and your inhibitions hold you back. If you feel you're destined for a bigger role or if you're destined for a different company, uh, just go for it and things will fall in place because you will make it work. So a lot of people hold back because they think, how will I figure out child care? How will I figure out what if this doesn't work out? You know, all of the, the ifs and buts, but there's never an end to that. We can always complicate our life by a small decision. This, every small decision can have a no or have a negative consequence. But again, apply that 80-20 rule and see if you really want that role, then go for it. There's uh, uh, This life is too short to be lived with regret. So I never want to have that regret when I'm in my 60s, like, oh, that role would have been fantastic. I, I wish I had taken that chance on myself. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I almost want to end there, but I have one, one last question. 
who is your role model and um, why do you think they've made such an important impact on you? Uh, so for me, role model is uh, not one person, but I think it's a mix of everyone that I have had the pleasure to work with, different bosses that have come into my life. Some have just been really good at managing and I, in tough situations, I either, some, I've thankfully stayed in touch with all, all of my old bosses and, and peers and I would be just sometimes I just look back and say, okay, how would this boss treat the situation? So I think that's, that's a, there's a combination of many things. And again, my, my dad was a pretty big influence on me just by his strong work ethic and his forward thinking. Uh, I think he really shaped a lot of my early years. Um, I, again, he, at age of 17, he, he asked me to take BME, biomedical engineering, which hardly any colleges in India offered at the time. And it was only offered in Mumbai, which was, again, I was in New Delhi and I was, like, I really don't want to go to a different city and live by myself. But I think those four years when I lived in Mumbai by myself were the best uh, shaping years of my life because I gained so much more confidence from 17 to 21 on how just to be in a big city, how to be safe, how to set up my bank account, how to travel safely back and forth between the two big cities, how to hire help when I need, how to figure out how to get to places. And I think I, I wish I can give that exposure to my kids too. Uh, just go live in a different city. You have to leave home, comfort of home. Uh, obviously, my mom wanted me to stay home, stay at home. But my dad said, no, if she has to grow into a big, smart person, she has to take this experience. And so I think that was it. And then again, my husband, who keeps pushing me, who never lets me settle for what it is good enough today. He's always challenging me to to like not um, pass on roles that, that look daunting in the beginning. Uh, otherwise, I would be still in Santa Rosa. I would have never made the big move to, to Irvine and be where I am. But it's really my husband who pushed me. So I think, and I've learned a lot of my decision-making and risk-taking from both my dad and my husband. So I think they've been excellent influences. Uh, and I have to credit my son because it's his birthday today. And he, <laughs> he's 12. Uh, and my daughter, who's turning out, who's 14, and she's shaping into a fantastic individual. And again, uh, both of my kids inspire me on a daily basis. Uh, both have uh, um, just amazing individuals. My daughter's an excellent swimmer and she's doing things that I would never imagine doing, diving in the ocean, doing things that are risk-taking. But again, I'm happy that she's exercising that muscle up front. And then my son, who just has a funny sense of humor and brings levity to all the stressful situations. So I think I admire both of them for their risk-taking and their just humor and that balanced approach to life. So I'm just happy to be surrounded with good people at home and at work. <laughs> That's amazing. Happy birthday to your son. What's his name again? Amog. Amog. Yeah. Um, he he actually reminds me of my brother a little bit because um, my brother is the person who in family stressful situations, he'll just say something ridiculous and just start laughing and like force everybody to just step back and feel like, okay, we're probably freaking out a bit. <laughs> so we'll, we'll calm down and he just, you know, adds levity to, to everything. So. Yeah. And I, and I, I hope I can be that person, but it's harder, but I'm just happy that he's around me to just make me laugh. And he just has the knack of, you know, knowing when to diffuse the situation when he knows things are stressful or, um, or just, they're just, just someone just needs a good laugh. Even if it's a stressful work meeting, you just come and make me laugh. And I just, that's awesome well thank you so much for uh coming on the show i'm super excited for your trip to hawaii and and hopefully everything will be safe and uh you know 
sending good vibes. Um, but seriously, thank you, Nita, so much for being on the show. This was so much fun talking to you. And I know I talked to you a lot, but I still learned a lot more <laughs> during this episode. So I'm sure that, um, you know, everybody will, will learn a lot uh, throughout the show. Thank you, Vishali. And I really appreciate you doing this. I think a lot of people will benefit uh, from just you bringing in a lot of the folks. So I'm just happy you're doing it. And I'm always impressed by different things you keep doing. So keep keep up the good work. I think you're doing a fantastic uh, you know, job by just enriching yourself by doing a lot of these things. So keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to MedTech Stories. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to get the latest episode on medtechstories.com or wherever you get your podcasts.